I want to share with you our message today that revolves around the Lord's Supper and remembering this sacrifice of what Jesus instituted for you and for I, for the church, his followers, his disciples, who have placed their trust and faith in Christ Jesus, what he tells those disciples at this supper on this evening. And he starts off in verse 17 through 19, sharing with them, first off, the preparation that was needed to go on. So I want to invite you to read along with me in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 17 through 19, as we start, and I share with you the first part of our message this evening as we look at this prepared Passover. Picking up in God's Word, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Let's pray together. If that's Jesus, let me know. No? All right, let's pray together. So Father, we thank you for your love, your mercy. We thank you for the exhortation of scripture. We thank you, Lord, that it's not by opinion that we gather or by feelings or any other motive of man, but by your word and your calling of your people together to hear the scriptures, much like Ezra read out to the people, much like prophets from days gone past, disciples have read, churches and pastors and Sunday school teachers and believers have read and proclaimed your word. We thank you for it. Father, we pray now that tonight will serve as a remembrance of the very thing you've commanded us to do, do this in remembrance of me. So, Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the blood and the body that was broken and shed for our salvation. We praise you now. Have your way with all that is said, shared, and done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to share with you in this first portion of Scripture as we look through what Matthew is recording for us, we're seeing here, number one, notice the preparation that the Scripture gives us about what Jesus was telling them that they needed to do. Yesterday we talked a little bit about the Passover meal and we we took a journey back through at the Exodus and we looked at what God was doing through the nation of Israel and we looked at the Passover lamb and the meal that was required and we looked at the blood that was to be shed on the and, and placed over the doors of the homes. That way the people would know that they were safe under the protection of Yahweh. And we knew that God's blood would be over their lintels, over the mantles, and the death angel would pass through and their children and their families would be unharmed. As we shared that story of the Passover of Exodus when Israel was leaving in preparation for a journey, we also reminded us today that our Exodus and the Passover that we celebrate now is no longer for the journey that we're to leave something, but rather the expectation of the return that Jesus is going to come back for his church, for his bride, for his body made up of believers of Jesus Christ. In the preparation here, though, in Matthew's gospel, in these verses, we see a few specific things that are mentioned in these preparations. Number one, notice that Jesus talks about the appointed time that was given to the Israelites in Exodus in chapter 12 in the very first verse. They were told when to do this and to begin doing this feast of the unleavened bread. And Jesus talks about this, and Matthew records it in 19, now on the first day of unleavened bread the day of remembrance of Israel's release from bondage, release from captivity, as God was intervening on their behalf to release them. Jesus says to them they would prepare a place for them to eat this Passover. This appointed time that Jesus was referring to here was not only the time of the unleavened feast, but I would argue it was the appointed time exactly when Jesus knew his hour had come 
as he will later on pray in the Garden of Gethsemane later that evening as they leave from this place of the Lord's Supper and Jesus takes his disciples to pray. He knows that his hour is upon him. He even cries out, if you remember the scripture or are familiar with what Jesus says, he says, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. You see, up to this point, Jesus had three years of earthly ministry where if people were flocking to him, and Jesus knew that in many of their hearts, they weren't coming to see him as the son of God, God incarnate, God in flesh, but rather they were coming because of the very miracles that they hoped to partake in. They came because their bellies were full. They came because their carnal appetites had been fulfilled by what they saw Jesus do. And here Jesus is preparing this appointed time now where all of those things will come to a cessation for a few moments in this week's time when he is crucified on the cross of Calvary, where he is dead and where he will be placed in a borrowed tomb. Death has come upon. As he will cry out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The appointed time had come for Jesus, and he understood this in that preparation. But also there was an appointed place where this was to take place in Jerusalem, where God incarnate his holy city would be this appointed place where the Messiah, Christ, would come and give of himself on the very mountain that David worshipped God, where we first see the center of worship where David builds an altar to God and purchases this at a price And he reminds those watching that I shall not worship the Lord my God that has cost me nothing as he purchases this land, the altar, the oxen, and the other things from a man called Ornan. David knew the cost of worship on this mountain that he would build a temple upon or would prepare the building of that temple through his son Solomon. And it's this appointed place that Jesus would come and show himself not only in Galilee, not only in the surrounding areas, but in Jerusalem itself, God's holy city, this Jesus would come. Mark tells of the divine omniscience of Jesus, God incarnate in the flesh as he possessed to know of even the details of who and where the Passover meal would be observed. Let me read for you Mark's gospel that gives a little more detail, as short as Mark is in writing skills that he leaves us in the short 16 chapters of his gospel. Here's what Mark goes on to explain some details that Matthew doesn't include. Mark would say this, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they were to sacrifice the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room, where, may, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, there prepare for us. You see this appointed place, God incarnate, God in flesh, the God of omniscience, meaning all-knowing, was able to give such exacting details to these disciples Not only of the man carrying a jar of water, but this house that would be prepared to talk to the master of that home, and they would find a room above it prepared already for them at the appointed time and at this appointed place that they would go to. You see, Jesus had been preparing this Passover meal before the earth was formed. If you go to Genesis chapter 3 and verses 16, you will see the great curse upon the serpent 
where God says you may bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. The very first presence of the gospel message being proclaimed, the proto-evangelium, big fancy word meaning Jesus was there from the beginning and the proclamation of this Passover meal was there from the third chapter of Genesis. We could argue and extend that a little more that it was there from the very beginning of the sentence when God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning was God. You see, it's a wonderful thing to know that God's control and his preparation for this Passover was not just simply a meal, but rather one that was made for you and I from the beginning of time until the completion of his perfect will for all of humanity. Isn't it amazing that we reflect upon the creation story of what God did in those six literal days that we believe when he created the heavens and the earth and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, And then he created man, and he breathed life into him after forming the dirt of the earth, breathed life into his creation. And when he looked at Adam, he said, it is very good. And then he went on to give Adam some specific responsibilities to have dominion over all of the earth. It's that same dominion that you and I have today that God has prepared for us And specifically, as we prepare and celebrate the Passover meal, and we look at what Jesus taught us about the bread and the blood that was shed for the forgiveness, the remission of sin, we see that there's an appointed person, and his name is Jesus. You see, not even the Levitical priests could prepare this meal in a way that would completely satisfy the wrath and bring justification for all of humanity. Every year, the high priest would make an atonement in Yom Kippur, where they would offer a sacrifice, a blood offering first for themselves before they went to approach Yahweh, before they went into the Holy of Holies. They would offer that sacrifice for their own sins, and then they would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the nation of Israel. And they would go into that Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory of God's presence hovered over the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim there, and they would worship God and sprinkle the blood offering, sprinkling it over the Ark. It's a reminder that Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 9 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. You see, this appointed person, Jesus, knew from the beginning of time that what the Levitical priesthood was trying to do is a replication of what Jesus would finally do in completion. An even greater high priest, the Hebrew writer would remind us that we have, one that offers a sacrifice once and for all for the atonement of every person who would put their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So an application I want to share with you, while we've looked at the historical accounts of 2,000 years ago, here's some truths that I believe to be absolutely relevant for you and I, that today is the appointed time for us to observe what Jesus did for you and I, that today is not only the appointed time, but in this place, in your home where you're at today, be it on a ball field or anywhere else, the appointed place that Jesus proclaimed is the place where his word is proclaimed in truth and lived out by his people. The appointed place is wherever the gospel finds you. You ever think about that statement for a minute? Did you find the gospel or did the gospel find you? I would argue that the gospel finds all of us at some point in our life. The question is, is our heart prepared and softened enough to where we will receive it with truth? When God calls us into that relationship with him, that appointed time and that appointed place may be wherever you are. 
doesn't have to take place in a church. It doesn't have to take place on Easter morning. It can take place in a dorm room. It can take place on a ball field. It can take place anywhere where you have that divine encounter with God. And I know this, that that appointed person, just as it was then, is still the appointed person today, and his name is Jesus. No man comes unto the Father except by me. Jesus is very clear about that. You see, some will claim that the gospel is a gospel of exclusion, that it's only for certain people. And I would argue Jesus would stand before you and give testimony today that it is for all people, for whosoever will, as Paul reminds us in Romans 10, 13, call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. What a wonderful knowing that it's not only an appointed time and an appointed place and an appointed person named Jesus, but that time is now, for today is the day of salvation. And we rejoice today that we can gather together and open the Scriptures now with the mind of Christ as the body of Christ, having been changed into the new man, no longer the old, no longer dead in our old way, but alive and new, resurrected in spirit, and one day resurrected in new body and spirit joined together with Him. And we can celebrate with clarity and understanding what God is revealing to you and I through His Word. It's no wonder that the heathen, the unregenerate, the unsaved, those who are secular that have no desire or need for the Word of God, we shouldn't wonder why that is. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. He says that gospel is utter foolishness to those who are perishing, but is salvation first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It is the power of God unto salvation. What a reminder for you and I that the reason we desire the things of God is because we have been renewed by the Spirit of God, by the Lamb of God. It takes away the sins of the world. But secondly, I want to share with you in our Scripture tonight the posture that we see at Passover. If you have your Bible, look in verse 20, and we'll read to 25 together. And I want to share with you this posture, if you will, that we see taking place. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. You see, there's a posture that's going on. Let me define for you what posture means. This posture, as Mr. Webster defines for us, it's a state or a condition at a given time, especially with respect to the capability and particular circumstance that people find themselves in. Or it's a conscious mental or an outward behavioral attitude. And I would argue that in this verse of Scripture, in these five short verses, we see some posturing that is going on at this Last Supper where Jesus institutes this commandment to do this in remembrance of me. What are those things that we see here that are being postured, if you will? Now, we all know what posture is. Let me give you an image of posture, right? You ever bought a car? You ever bought a car from a dealer? You ever go back to the finance room of the dealer's office? going to finance the car from the dealer? If you haven't, it's quite an experience, right? 
But I notice ever since my first experience, when I go back there, my posture changes with the finance guy because I know he's there to take my money, right? Car dealership may be great. My salesman may be awesome. We probably drank two or three cups of coffee together. But when he drops me off in the back room, what happens? The car salesman goes back out front for a little while, doesn't he? And what happens to our posture? We, we stiffen up. We get a little more uptight. We might even cross our hands. We might break out our phone, compare some numbers, and then we start bickering back and forth, right? Not always the most friendly relationship. We know what posture is, right? And if you don't understand that example, you ever heard your dad come into the house when you were a boy and you did something wrong and his voice was elevated and he started hollering your name with great urgency? Did your posture change a little bit and what was going on? If there was an emotional change. Well, there was some posturing going on in this room as we've read about the Scripture. Number one, there was a posture that we see of relational relevance. Relational relevance. Look what was going on with Jesus, God incarnate, and His 12 disciples in verse 20 at the very beginning of this. Look at the, the, the posture that they had with one another as they were taking this meal. When it was evening, He reclined at the table... With the twelve. Y'all catch that? God in the flesh, on the floor. Now, this isn't a table like you and I would eat at today. This was a meal that was probably on a dirt floor. Might have had some linens or some carpets over it. Probably dirt floor. They might have had a little six-inch high table that stuff was sat on, but they were on the floor reclining back on their hip or their side or leaning on their elbow, eating all from the communal dishes that were there located in front of them. This wouldn't have been the the big supper that most of us are familiar with on the tapestry, where there's this big, long, 30-foot table where all the apostles and disciples are gathered there, and Jesus is in in the center. And if you've seen the painting with the halo around his head, signifying the deity of the Son of God, that's not really the image that we would have had in the Palestinian culture. They would have been reclining around there very casually like the best college buddies ever known together having this meal around the campfire. Very celebratory. This is the relationship that Jesus had with his followers. I would argue it's still the relationship of relevance that he wants with you and me. That's how close and how intimate and how personal our walk with Jesus can be. That he walks with me and he talks with me along life's merry way, as the song goes. What a wonderful thing that we can recognize that this Messiah, this Christ, this Jesus that would die on Calvary's cross is the same Jesus that's wanting to recline with you and I daily wherever we are in life to break bread together with us, to help us remind ourselves when we break bread together as the body of Christ to do it in remembrance of Him, that we also can have a relational relevance of Christ in our life the same way that He had with His twelve. Now notice the other thing you don't see right in the text, but it tells us who was there reclining with Him. Who all was there? You remember a guy by the name of Judas? Who at the end of this verse in 25, Jesus would point out, you have said so, yet you. Jesus was reclining with him too. Too often we forget that Jesus was all about sharing his truth with sinners, being in the presence of those who didn't know the truth so that he could lead them into repentance, into understanding who he was, 
Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus didn't hang out with sinners because he thought it was cool. He didn't hang out with sinners because he thought it was in vogue and the thing to do because it really ticked off the Pharisees and he digged it. That's not why he hung out with sinners. And he didn't hang out with sinners because that's just where they were. He had a purpose in what he was doing in that relationship to draw them out of that life of sin into a life of repentance to follow Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God Almighty, who he was and who he is. Remember, he says, I'm not the, I'm not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. There was a posture there that we can relate with, with Jesus. Number two, though, we see in verse 21 that there was a recognized reality in the room. Look in the scripture again and, and see if you see it with me. And they, as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The recognized reality that there was those who would sin against the very Son of God in that room. And I would go as far as to say, in this room, all of us are guilty at some point in our life, of sinning against God. Maybe today, maybe yesterday, maybe prior to our salvation, but for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, well, when Jesus is reading this and, or sharing this and saying this, and, and Matthew records it here, I, I can't help but think how Jesus is telling us, he's speaking directly to my heart when he says, I say to you, one of you will betray me leaving us all recognizing the reality that none of us can be righteous on our own, that we all fall short of these things, and Jesus saw it. Now, in context, we know that it's speaking about the betrayal immediately that Judas Iscariot would do as he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Premeditated betrayal, as another gospel will record for us, that he went to the Pharisees and the religious elite and said, what will you give me for him? 30 pieces of silver, fulfilling another Old Testament prophecy of what the Messiah's life would be worth by the religious people. But here we see that the reality is our sin nature is revealed, even in the wonderful fellowship, the relation that they had with one another. There was still a reality of sin that would creep in. And church, I argue if we're not careful, that sin can creep in amongst us as Paul reminded us in Acts chapter 20, 28, be on guard, watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing will come in to devour you from within, drawing the disciples away after false doctrine. But thirdly, notice in verses 22 and 23 that there's a posture of what I call a remorse from recall. What do I mean by recall? You see, these disciples that are sitting here after hearing Jesus just say this, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Look what happens in verse 22. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? Now why would they say that? Because in their heart of hearts, they all know they all had betrayed Jesus at some point during his earthly ministry. They just hadn't been called out on it yet. They all said, notice, notice the, the noun that's used here, the description, they and they were very sorrowful. Not just Judas, but every single one of them. And they respond saying, is it I, Lord? And he answered in verse 23. You see, isn't it funny how the recall of our actions in our daily walk here at a 
the disciples so much that instead of being able to say, I know I'm right with God, and standing there, glad it's not me, he must be talking about one of y'all, right? Now, we do that in the Baptist church, don't we? Preacher ain't talking about me. You preacher, pastor. That was a great sermon. I sure hope someone was here that needed to hear that today. How many times pastors hear that on the way out the door by one of their members? Sure hope someone was here that needed to hear that. (laughs) Sister, come see me on Tuesday. Let's let's have a coffee together, right? Because we all need to hear it, don't we? And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another. You see, their own conviction had gripped them. It may have just been a thought in their mind where they denied Jesus and they denied him being the Messiah. They doubted the miracles. They doubted the boat experience when he calmed the sea and storm and everybody said, surely this must be the Son of God. There might have still been a little doubt by a few of them. A few uncertain of why they're actually back in Jerusalem right now when all this persecution is happening and in their minds they're remembering that this Messiah is supposed to come and free them from the bondage of this Roman oppression and take up his rightful throne of being the king like a military commander and overthrow all the wrong of the world. Maybe there was a little doubt in our heart and mine too as we celebrate this Resurrection Sunday if Jesus is really who we say he is. Jesus even asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? You see, I think there was a little remorse because of their own recall of their memory. But isn't it a wonderful thing that when we placed our trust and faith in Jesus, we don't have to live in the guilt of our past sins, but with a repentant nature of forgiveness that Jesus extends to us as his children, that he's wanting to forgive us just as quickly as we want to forgive our own child when they've done something wrong. We want them to learn from the experience. But if you've ever had a child get in trouble, make a decision that was really not good, and there was some discipline that followed in some form or fashion, I don't know about you, but I couldn't wait as a parent for that time of discipline to be gone so that joy of my relationship with my child can be restored back to what it's supposed to be. Folks, it's the same way with our Heavenly Father. That while there may be a period of discipline in our life because we've recalled the remorse of our own sins, but when we cry out to God and ask for for His forgiveness, Scriptures tell us that He forgives. And when He forgives, He forgives completely. The psalmist will remind us in Psalm 103, verses 11 through 12, that as far as the east is from the west, our sins are forgiven, removed, never to be seen again. That's how God forgives his children. But fourthly, there's a posture of rendered judgment that Jesus gives. Jesus gives. Now the disciples might have been judging Judas as he walked out the room and thought to himself, they're really not sure what's going on. Perhaps it's because he was the, the money holder. Perhaps it's because he kept the purse and was taken out from the top a little bit for himself, and they kind of knew it. But they didn't know what to say and how to deal with it or how to address it without conflict. Maybe they were judging Judas as he was walking out the door. But here it's not the judgment of the disciples. It's not the judgment of other believers. It's not the judgment of the body of Christ. Notice the rendered judgment of Christ himself in verses 24 and 25. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? 
The fact Judas had even asked. And it strike you as funny. The fact he even asked. He knew the arrangement he had made. Matter of fact, it hadn't even taken place yet. And Jesus called him on it. And what would he do later? He would still follow through even knowing that Jesus knew he had been betrayed. Is it I, he said to him, you have said so. You see, the rendered judgment that Jesus makes here for Judas is one that I could argue and would argue that could apply equally to any person here who has looked at Jesus as the Savior and then walked away an apostate, one who denies the faith that they once said they believed in. Much like Judas followed Jesus during his earthly ministry, benefiting from all that Jesus did, listening to all of the sermons, listening to all the teachings from God himself, and then decides, I want the world more than I want the Savior. Jesus renders judgment on him like he will those who continue to choose the world over the Messiah on that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. John would record this about what happened this very night in this passage in John 13, 27. He would say the following, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now we can't remove the divine hand of God's omnipotence and omnipresence and and all of those things that makes God who he is that he knew this time would come and use Judas and this entire story to lead him to Calvary's cross, to allow the Romans to crucify him, to be buried dead and on the third day risen from the grave. We know that that was God's plan from the beginning of the fall. We see it recorded in Genesis 3. 15, 16, 17. Genesis 3, 23. The killing of the innocent animal and the shedding of blood and the clothing of Adam and woman's nakedness in the garden. Now it's the shedding of the blood that is going to come for the Lamb of God. Thirdly, let me share with you, Matthew, as he closes this, this dialogue in the upper room. What takes place here is the pronouncement, the pronouncement at the Passover. In verses 26 through 29, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now let me stop for a minute and let's get our head wrapped around first century church and how the Passover meal was celebrated. It was not in the context of how we today celebrate the the Pasha, if you will, the Hebrew word for this Passover meal. You see, they were already eating when Jesus instituted this this remembrance of himself through the Passover, the Lord's Supper, this ordinance where he tells us to now do this from now on. Notice the beginning of the text. Now, as they were eating, it was much more of a meal than a cup of wine and a wafer in a cup. We do that today for a lot of different reasons, but it was a celebration of doing life together with one another. Did you know that this church celebrates breaking bread together as the body of Christ every single week. We have a kitchen that the saints of this church invested thousands and thousands of dollars in years ago. And I promise you, it wasn't so we could cook scrambled eggs and serve breakfast for the Lord's Supper. 
It was so it could provide a communal place where the body could come together to view this very thing as we were eating together and giving thanks to God for the meal that he has provided to the body of Christ. Folks, everything we do in this church is an attempt to get us back to understanding the extent at which Jesus had a relationship with one another. Our meals aren't to pay for paper products. Our meals aren't to help us keep our kitchen going. Our meals are so we can partake in this fellowship that was so sweet and intimate that Jesus himself, on the night that he was betrayed, took the time to celebrate in breaking of bread with the body of Christ. Now, if God found time to break bread together, how about us? I mean, that's what we're doing here. That's why we do it. We may miss that in the busyness of life, but the reality is we instituted this intentionally for that relationship so we too may experience what it means to eat together as the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters who have the same inheritance in the kingdom of heaven that these same disciples here around this table leaning on one another. We are heirs to the same kingdom of God. And it's the same Jesus that we pray to before we break bread together. What a wonderful understanding. There's four pronouncements that are going on here, and I don't think I finished reading the Scripture. Let me pick back up in verse 27. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. Now, folks, this wasn't Welch's grape juice, just to be clear. I know we're Baptist and all, but if we're going to teach the Scriptures expositionally, let's understand what was taking place here. And I would argue it probably wasn't watered-down wine. You see, Jesus had a habit of making the best wine, didn't he? You know, the very first miracle, the wedding feast in Cana that we see in John's Gospel records, the very first miracle was what? Jesus turning the water into not just any wine, but the good wine, the best wine wine, so much so that those who had already drunk their fill now drink of this new wine. And the, the, the event master, if you will, comes out, the host, and says, man, what's going on? You normally save the best for, for last. This is good. Better than anything we've probably ever tasted. You see, they're participating in this, and it's interesting that Jesus would go on and say, drink of it, all of you. All of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for their forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I want you to look in verse 28 for a minute. Well, I'll get there. Let me just follow my outline. Otherwise, we'll be here all night. Amen. Four pronouncements that were made here at this Passover meal by Jesus. Number one, he announces the body that would be broken. The broken bread that symbolized at this supper what would take place in the day to come when Jesus' body would be scourged, unrecognizable as human flesh, and then nailed to a cross for you and me. Jesus says this body take and eat. This is my body. This bread that was broken. The body of Christ. Secondly, we see the the pronouncement of a prepared vessel that is ready to be offered up. 
He refers to it in verse 27 as he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out. You see, Jesus had prepared himself for what was going to take place. He would continue later that night in the Garden of Gethsemane in prayer, as John would record it, sweating something like the drops of blood in the excruciating agony that he was in. Something like drops of blood, big drops of sweat. It's his brow. Thirdly, though, there was a pronouncement of being poured out, if you will. Notice in the second part of verse 28, he says poured out, right? He says this, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want you to underline the word many for a moment. In the Greek, the, the word polon means a relatively large quantity of objects or events. Many, a great deal of, a great deal of, a great number. Now, what's the significance of many? Here's what I think it is. I think J- Jesus is giving you and I a glimpse into the difficulty of what would come for the disciples and for you and I as we proclaim the message of the gospel. Notice Jesus didn't say poured out for all. He said poured out for many. Now why is that? Not that all can't come to him, because clearly the scripture makes it clear that for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. If Jesus draws us, the Father draws us into that relationship, we know we can have a relationship. But I think Jesus is telling us here that there are many who will not choose him. Imagine that now. Get our head wrapped around what's taking place here. Jesus, who knows he's fixing to go to Golgotha's hill to take on our sin, to bear our punishment, to be inflicted, to be smitten, to be forsaken by God on the cross of Calvary. And knowing in this verse that there are many who will not accept him. There are many that will scoff and laugh and mock like the thief on the right who would rebuke him till his dying day that the Messiah was nothing more than a fool on the cross dying a death just like we thieves. But you see, there was another thief on the other side. That thief recognized who Jesus was. And Jesus, understanding his confession and belief and trust and faith, pisto the faith into Christ, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't have enough time to get off the cross and go do a bunch of good things. He didn't have enough time to go drop his offering at the temple and hear it ring in the coffer. He didn't have enough time to go invite 15 people to church to do his deed for the week. He put his faith in Jesus in that moment. Jesus recognized him as one of his own that his name had been written in the Lamb's book of life. While condemned to death in this world, he would receive an eternal inheritance. Imagine being told by Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise. You know that's what happens to every single person the moment we confess our sins and accept Jesus. Jesus has just said to you at that profession of faith in him, today you will be with me in paradise. Folks, it doesn't get any sweeter than that, to know that we've been forgiven of our sins, poured out, spread out for the forgiveness of sins for many. But many will still refuse to accept him. Fourthly, though, I want to share with you in verse 29, 
Notice there's a transition that begins. From Jesus' earthly ministry to the Via Dolorosa, the walk from the cross as he goes to Golgotha's hill, Jesus marks this event as the transition when he says that I will not drink it again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It wasn't new on Sunday afternoon when he ascends to the Father and goes to be with God in glory before he comes back to the mountain in Galilee or the upper room where the disciples were gathered. Notice he says that relational element again. I will not drink the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now exegetically, I don't know if that means Jesus hasn't had any wine yet because we're not all there. Or if he's already partaking with some that have followed on to be with him. I'm not sure I'll leave that part up to him. But I know this much. There was a transition marked here in this verse of scripture where Jesus lets his disciples know that things won't be like they've been in the past. There is a change coming. And you awesome power of God's right hand at work. What a wonderful thing that you and I get to partake in. I want to share with you tonight as we partake in the Lord's Supper, as everyone received their elements. Now, if you're at home and watching this and would like to come down, we'll wait about 15 minutes for you. We've got some in the back. Just stop right in and grab you one, and, and we'll pick up from there, right? Just push pause on your YouTube right now. You can pick back up when we get started, right? If everyone has their elements, notice I just want to orient you to our cups. We have two sides, and they have fairly large tabs on them for us to be able to open them up. On the small side will be the wafer, if you will, of unleavened bread that we will use to participate in the breaking of the bread of the Lord's Supper. And then the top will be our grape juice that we will use to celebrate the communion of the cup that was passed for you and I that we'll represent here tonight. I want to share with you, though, in the taking of the Lord's Supper tonight, a reading out of Mark's Gospel. We've been in Matthew this evening as I've exegeted the text for you to explain what Jesus did, but I want to share with you how Mark records for us to do and participate in this ordinance of the Lord's Supper tonight. So if you have your Bible and you would like to follow along in Mark chapter 14, verses 23 through 26, we have a very clear understanding of Jesus' words about doing this in remembrance of Him and how we do this. Amen. Picking up in Mark's gospel, chapter 14 and verse 22, he says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Now, as we read that story, what we don't see here is Mark reminding us, or Paul reminding us, in the letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church, you had lots of issues. He reminds them in this, this chapter, in verse, in verse 18 of chapter 11, 20, excuse me, 28 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, that we're to examine ourselves before we participate in the Lord's Supper so that we may not have any fault found against us. What Paul is telling us is there's sin in all of our lives, and he's challenging the church, have you repented of your sin before we participate in the Lord's Supper? Have we repented of those things that will be held account against us that we've not asked for repentance from? If so, we need a time of examination to do that. So as Brother Greg is going to play for a few moments right where you sit, I just give you an opportunity for the next minute or two to examine your heart and go before the Lord. Lord, seek my heart. Examine me. Know if there are any wicked way that be within me. 
And if so, Lord, forgive me of those sins. Let's take a few moments and examine ourselves before we participate in the Lord's Supper.
As you're finishing our time in prayer, Mark is very clear about what Jesus told us as we participate. And he says, take, this is my body. And he took the cup and we had given thanks. He gave it to them and he said, and they drank. Now, I'm sorry, I missed, I missed the bread part. At the beginning of it, he gives the bread in verse 20, 22. And as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. We'll partake in the Lord's breaking of the bread together. He goes on in verse 23, and he says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Let us drink. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the bread that was broken, the body that was broken, and this bread that we participate in now is a remembrance of all that you have done for your church, for the body of Christ. We thank you for the blood that was shed, for through that we know that there is forgiveness of sins through what you have done on the cross of Calvary. Father, we look forward to the hope of this resurrection and this day that we will celebrate on Sunday morning. Father, and we look forward to the resurrection of meeting you face to face, and we will see you as you are. And Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time of assembling the body of Christ and the participation in the Lord's Supper. Father, be with us in all that is said and done, all that is shared. And as we go our separate ways tonight, help us to reach those that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what I want to share with you in closing in verse 26, he says, And, as, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out of the Mount of Olives together. They were rejoicing as they went. Despite what would take place, we can still rejoice in knowing that Jesus is still on the throne. Amen. Jesus is still in charge.